Good. Well, we are, as you may have guessed, if you've been with us over the last weeks, continuing in our series On the Road with Jesus in the New Testament book of Luke today. Uh, And if you're here for the first time and you've no idea what that's about, then we are basically walking through passage by passage, verse by verse, all the way through Luke's gospel. Uh, And we are today in chapter 13, uh, verse 10 to 21. And having covered a huge amount of ground in the last couple of weeks, we've, we've done like massive chunks in the last couple of weeks, uh, which has been quite intense. We are slowing down this week, and we're going to zoom right in on just a few verses, just one healing and one piece of teaching from Jesus about the kingdom of God. We're going to look together at how Jesus brings freedom to this woman that he encountered. This woman who everyone else overlooked. We're also going to look at what Jesus has to teach through that about his kingdom. Now over the last few weeks, if you've been with us, you will have noticed that Jesus spent a huge amount of time in the last couple of chapters essentially repeating that it's not about religious performance. That the kingdom of God isn't about externals. It's not about kind of looking the right way or behaving the right way in order to earn approval. It's not about uh, having prestige or being well thought of by people. But it's about your heart and your heart's response to God and how you live your life out of that place. He's spent time actually quite aggressively attacking the religious leaders for their hypocrisy, people who professed faith, but for them it was all about external and religious performance that actually wasn't born out of a heart's desire to please God at all. He's effectively been saying for this last bit of time, it's not external, it's internal. It's not external, it's internal over and over again. It's like if you can live by the law and have a life of legalistic religious devotion. But if you don't humble yourself and cry out for a saviour, if you aren't motivated by a desire to please God, then you're lost. That's in a nutshell what Jesus has been saying for these last few chapters. And in the passage we're going to look at today, we'll see up close the contrast between the heart attitude of Jesus and those who follow him compared to the hypocrites that Jesus has been addressing and those who just want to justify themselves. So we're going to dig in. The first thing we read in verse 10 is this. Now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. Before we go any further, Luke sets the scene for us. He gives us some context. Jesus is teaching, and he's teaching not out on a hillside, He's teaching not out on the street or in some of the other places that we found him. He's teaching not in someone's home, reclining at the table, in some of the other contexts that we've seen him in the last chapters. He's teaching in a synagogue. And it's actually the last time we read of Jesus teaching in a synagogue in Luke's gospel. And so this is an important moment in Jesus' ministry. This is an important moment in Luke's narrative as Jesus walks towards the cross. Because Jesus began his public ministry 
in the synagogue. And you might remember that when we covered it way back in Luke chapter 4. And as Jesus went into the synagogue to begin his ministry, he read some verses. He was the teacher that day. And he read some verses from the Torah. He read some verses that we know of as Isaiah chapter 61. And he applied them to himself, these promises that the people of God had lived with, this this messianic promise, these words about what the Savior would do, what the coming Messiah would do to bring freedom. And Jesus read these words and applied them to himself. He declared that he'd come and was anointed to proclaim good news to the poor, to bring liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, that he'd come to set at liberty those who were oppressed. And ever since that announcement, that's exactly what we've seen Jesus doing, isn't it? Through Luke's gospel. It's like everywhere he goes, he's setting free people who are oppressed. He's bringing freedom to captives from spiritual oppression, from physical bondage to illness and sickness. Jesus has been doing exactly what he said he would do. He's demonstrated that he really does have authority to do it. And now we find him in the synagogue teaching again. And amongst those who've gathered to hear him, amongst those who've come to hear him teach that day, those who've come to worship in the synagogue on that Sabbath, there are a few key characters who we get to know a little bit in this passage. They come to the fore at different times. And the first one is this woman. And Luke introduces her in verse 11. We read this. And there was a woman who had had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. Like this, this is a sorry picture. This woman had some kind of physical condition that she caused the spiritual oppression that caused her to be bent over, hunched over double in pain, in discomfort, in this position for 18 years. Now, you have to understand that there would have been a huge amount of shame for that woman. If you even just think about some of the practical things that would have been uncomfortable and almost impossible for that woman to do, you've got all of that. You put that into the context of a culture and a society where often people in physical sickness were viewed as, well, that must be a result of some kind of sin in your life. So this woman would have lived probably mocked by children for her appearance because as much as we'd like to pretend that isn't the case, we all know that children can be cruel when they see people who look unusual or who are maybe hunched or disfigured in some kind of way. She'd lived under the shame of people assuming that this was probably the result of some terrible sin she'd committed, either her or her parents. And she lived in pain and discomfort. It's a sorry picture. In fact, it's absolutely staggering 
when you begin to think about it that this woman was there at all in the synagogue to hear Jesus teach that day. What she'd overcome to be there, what she'd probably endured even maybe whilst making her way there. What was probably going on in her own head and heart as she stood there in the synagogue. What people were thinking about her. The judgments they were making about her. And yet, there she was. Maybe she'd heard about some of the things Jesus had been doing. The freedom he'd brought to people. Blind eyes open. Deaf ears open. Even people from the dead raised to life. Remember that story? Of the man given back to his mother, raised from the dead? Maybe she'd heard of some of those things. Maybe that's why she was there. Perhaps it was simply God's providence that she was there that day. It was her habit to go and worship week after week. She didn't know Jesus was going to be there. It was just her usual custom to be there. In spite of her condition and the shame that she bore because she knew that God was worthy of her worship. And so she came even through the pain. It would have been easier for that woman to stay away. She would have gone knowing people were judging her. Gone knowing that many would think she shouldn't be there. A sinner like her in this place particularly those hypocrites who Jesus has been addressing in the last few chapters. They would have been the first to condemn that woman. And maybe some of you can relate to something of what she might have felt that day. Maybe you're listening online or you're here today and you you can relate to something of what she felt. It might not be a physical ailment like she suffered but some emotional scar that you live with and it feels like an accomplishment just to be here today maybe some sin actually that you have carried with and instead of enjoying the freedom of forgiveness that you've carried on walking with the shame and you sat here today and you feel like should I be here am I good enough to be here like is it maybe you're sat here today thinking what are they thinking about me All of us carry scars. All of us walk with baggage. All of us, I would say at times, actually could relate to this woman in some way. Some more so than others. Let's see how Jesus deals with her. We read from verse 12, Jesus says, we, we read, When Jesus saw her, he called her over. This woman who would have been overlooked, this woman who would have been looked down on, this woman who many would have thought shouldn't be there even, Jesus called her over. 
to himself and said, woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her and reached out and touched her. And immediately she was made straight and glorified God. Jesus saw her in the crowd. He singled her out. He called her out from where she was. And he brought to her healing and wholeness. In an instant, she was free from pain. 18 years. I don't know if you can even begin to process what that woman would have felt in that moment. For 18 years, under this oppressive spirit, she had been bent over, double, unable to stand up, unable to look anyone even in the eye. In a society where eye contact meant so much about respect and honour. Unable to even maintain eye contact with someone. Bent over. And in a moment, Jesus brings freedom. Brings healing. Restores her. Brings dignity. She's straightened up. No longer bent over. No longer forced into the shameful and humiliating posture. This is incredible. This is powerful. You're here today and you can identify in some way with that woman, then I want to tell you that Jesus can do the same for you and that He wants to do the same for you. There's something in your life that is causing you to feel like you're bent over double, that you're not able to stand up straight. There's something weighing on you. Jesus can bring you freedom today. Jesus brings this woman freedom. We're going to talk more about it in a moment. But as he brings her freedom, did you notice what she did? Then if you noticed, in the passage it tells us straight away, she was made straight and she glorified God. This woman who'd come even in her sickness, who'd come even in her shame to worship now, As she was brought freedom, as she straightens up, she glorifies God. The the natural heart response of someone who's found freedom in Christ Jesus is to worship God. Yeah? Should be the overflow of our lives. To give glory to God for all that he's done, for the freedom that he's brought to us, for the forgiveness that we found in him. She was delighted understandably, but not everyone was very happy about what was going on. And our next character steps to the fore. We read from verse 14, but the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, there are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed. And not on the Sabbath day. The religious leaders whom Jesus had been blasting for their hypocrisy over the last few chapters, for their obsessing and over-enforcing the letter of the law whilst completely missing the heart of the law, those who cared more about being seen as holy rather than actually being holy, well, one of them pops up again. This synagogue ruler is cross. And if you notice, he's not actually so cross that Jesus has healed her. 
He doesn't think there's any problem with the healing. His, his issue isn't with the fact that this woman has found freedom, even. His issue is that Jesus did it on the Sabbath. And the Sabbath was a day of rest. And healing was work. And so Jesus shouldn't have done it. The guy completely misunderstands what the Sabbath was actually about. And elsewhere in the Gospels we find Jesus say was, was Sabbath was made for the man, not man for the Sabbath. It, it was intended as a day to do us good, actually, to bring restoration and wholeness. A day all about giving glory to God and not anyone else. And this woman who's just been healed does precisely that, gives glory to God as she's brought freedom and healing. And the Pharisee, or the, the leader in the synagogue, says, healing is work and you shouldn't work on the Sabbath. Don't come and ask for healing again on a Sabbath. You just think, this is nuts, isn't it? Like anyone anyone to make sure that it doesn't happen again the synagogue ruler is so incensed that he stands up and tells everyone in no uncertain terms that if they do need healing they are six days a week that they can come and do it but they should absolutely not expect to find freedom from whatever is oppressing them on the sabbath (laughs) anyone with any common sense at all anyone who understands anything about the nature of god can see that this is crazy. But that doesn't stop him from saying it. (laughs) In his overzealous application of the law, he was wrong. As he tried to stop people coming to find freedom in Jesus, and Jesus wastes no time in correcting him. We read on from verse 15. Then the Lord answered him, You hypocrites, Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or donkey from the manger and lead it away to water? But ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years to be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? Jesus again, as he's done consistently in the last few chapters, calls the religious leader here hypocrites. He he hates their callous hearts. He points out, Actually, that there are exceptions to the law about the Sabbath. He uses livestock as one example. He's like, look, you've got livestock. You untie it to take it to be fed and watered on the Sabbath. And there's a concession for that because it would be cruel to that animal, to that ox or to that donkey for it to go hungry and thirsty on the Sabbath because feeding it would be considered work for you. So you, you're quite happy to make an exception. What would ordinarily be considered work is permitted so that it's not cruel to these animals. And the religious leader who had just told everyone to go away and come back another day to be healed quite okay with that exception for animals so how horrid how callous how 
inconsistent. How hypocritical, which Jesus calls him a hypocrite, that they would allow care for an animal on the Sabbath and would turn away people in need of freedom, in need of healing. People made in the image of God. And in reasoning this way, Jesus just exposes this guy's hard, callous heart. They failed to grasp the heart of God for people. This man was failing to love his neighbor as himself. And actually in so doing, he just revealed that he didn't really understand the love of God at all. The other thing that happens in this exchange that we really mustn't miss is just, it feels to us like a throwaway phrase, but Jesus gives this woman who had walked for 18 years carrying shame, he gives this woman incredible dignity as he speaks about her. As he calls her a daughter of Abraham. Jesus, as he calls her, that reminds the religious leader who was incensed about her healing. Reminds everyone else present who would have perhaps overlooked her up to that point. Reminds everyone in earshot, and reminds us too today, that this woman, daughter of Abraham, was one of God's people. Was one who would inherit the promises of God. And those present were ready to overlook her. And as Jesus brings her freedom, straightens her up, brings release, he also speaks to her identity, affirms her value as one of God's people, gives her real dignity. I don't know how you're processing this emotionally. I asked, maybe some of you identify with this woman in some ways. But I want to say to you today that there is freedom to be found in Jesus. And just as he spoke to affirm this woman, her identity within the people of God, her dignity as someone made in his image for his glory, that whatever you've been carrying, whatever shame you might feel today, that A, you can know freedom from Jesus, that you can straighten up, as it were. But also, that he would want to say to you, if you're in Christ, you're in. You're in the household of God, in the family of God, and there is dignity and value and worth as one made in his image, as one adopted into his family for you today. And we read from verse 17, as he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame. The hypocrisy was exposed and all the people rejoiced at the glorious things that were done by him. This is an amazing moment, an incident of incredible individual care and concern that Jesus shows for this woman. There were many present who needed healing. We, we get that from the fact that the synagogue ruler stood up and told everyone else who was in need of healing that they should come back another day. Yeah? But, but Luke gives us this account of this one woman. 
this precious daughter of Abraham. But Jesus also goes on to use this healing, to use this miracle as a teaching point and as an illustration of what the kingdom of God is all about and how it works. See, the crowd love what Jesus is doing. They've heard Jesus' teaching before. They know that Jesus has gone around proclaiming that he's come to bring the kingdom. They've been waiting for the Messiah who would bring the kingdom. And Jesus has said, I'm here. They were excited. But their understanding of what the coming of the kingdom of God was going to be like was not quite right. See, they thought that the coming kingdom, that the Messiah was going to bring about a, a great kind of triumphalistic, political, cultural, socioeconomic revolution. They're looking for a Messiah who's going to lead them in a great victory and overthrow their Roman oppressors. Who's going to bring about a great military victory for them. And Jesus wants them to know that's not how the kingdom's coming. With the noise of the crowds praising him for what he's just done ringing in our ears, as we've read this passage, Jesus goes on to say, this is what the kingdom's like. They're all expecting this incredible, dramatic overthrowing of the Romans and establishing of the nation. In his account of the healing and in what Jesus goes on to say, Luke is careful to put these two things together and make the connection for us. He wants to make it really clear for us so we don't miss it. So the very next thing we read is this from verse 18. He said, therefore. So in the light of what's just been happening with the the noise of the crowd celebrating what Jesus has done, ringing in our ears, said, Jesus then says something because of that, in the light of that, connected to that, Jesus said, what is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? He's saying in the light of people's expectations of a great victory, in the light of the healing that he's just brought to this woman, one person in a great crowd in the synagogue, in the light of that, against that background, what is the kingdom of God like? And then we read this from verse 19. It's like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden. And it grew and became a tree and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. And again he said, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour. That's a lot of flour, by the way, until it was all leavened. Jesus gives us two pictures of things that seem small and insignificant and that for a considerable amount of time are hidden. But that in time have a disproportionately large impact. A small seed that's buried in the ground and hidden. But when you bury a seed, it looks like it's gone, right? You you bury it and nothing happens for a while. But you trust that something's going to come of it. 
this seed buried in the ground and hidden, and after some time sprouts and grows and becomes a substantial tree, substantial enough for birds to come from all around and nest in its branches, or a small amount of yeast, hidden in a large amount of flour. At first, seems like nothing's happening. And if any of you have baked bread, I spent some time trying to learn to bake bread in the first lockdown with mixed results. But when you hide the yeast or the leaven, if you're making sourdough and you've got your starter there, you, you hide it in with the flour and for a while, it just looks like nothing's happening. But over time, it works through the dough and it has an impact. As the dough begins to rise. And Jesus uses these unusual pictures and says, that's what the kingdom's like. It isn't a big showy breakthrough accompanied by fanfare and hype. It's powerful for sure. It has an undeniable and far-reaching impact, probably more than we could possibly understand or imagine. But it comes from small beginnings. Remember, Jesus has just brought freedom to this one woman in the synagogue. And then he follows it up, this one woman in the synagogue, and says, this is what the kingdom's like. Seemingly small and insignificant, but just you wait. In other words, Jesus deliberately puts these things side by side. He wants us to see this is how the kingdom comes. One life at a time person by person, finding freedom and wholeness in Jesus. Person by person who might be bent over, double under the weight of sin and shame in their life, finding forgiveness and freedom and straightening up to give glory to God. This is what the kingdom of God is like. As God brings freedom to people and they straighten up and worship him, Others are reached and others find freedom and turn to worship him. And so it spreads. So the leaven works through the dough. So the tree grows up. Burden after burden lifted. Life after life transformed. And in one sense, that image that Jesus gave, you could say, has already come about. Right? You start with the seed of Jesus at the cross sown into the ground, risen again on the third day. That seed sown, the Bible talks about Jesus as a seed before him coming. The seed of Jesus given up at the cross, sown into the ground, risen victorious. And men and women all over the globe now have come to find freedom in him. The leaven has worked through all the nations of the earth. Birds from all over are nesting in the goodness of the kingdom of God. In, in many ways, we could say this picture that Jesus gave has already happened. You know, in fact, in the first 350 years after Jesus' life, death and resurrection, we could say that this has already come about. Jesus left his disciples, not that many of them, with a simple mission to go into all the world, to make disciples, to teach people to obey everything he'd commanded. And they did. 
Well, at, at first, they stayed in Jerusalem. Jesus said, go to Jerusalem, and Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And it's like they heard the Jerusalem bit and went, got it, Jerusalem. <laughs> now, he did tell them to wait in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit came, and then they'd receive power to be his witnesses to the ends of the earth. But they kind of stuck in Jerusalem for a while. A few hundred of them. They saw some people added. We get into the thousands. Starts to get exciting. God added to their number daily those who were being saved. The trees growing up, the leavens working through the dough. And then in around 35 AD, a man called Stephen, a leader in the early church, was killed for his faith. Stoned to death. And it triggered a persecution against the Christians. And the result was the church was scattered beyond Jerusalem. It took persecution for them to go beyond, but they went beyond. And as they went, what happened? The leaven carries on working through the dough. The kingdom kept expanding. Around 64 AD, more persecution from Nero. The kingdom keeps expanding. By 150 AD, it's reckoned there were around 40,000 Christians from just a few hundred after Jesus' ascension to now 40,000 by 150 AD. By 200 AD, it's reckoned there were over 200,000. The leavens working through the dough, the trees growing up from that small seed sown into the ground. By 300 AD, it's reckoned that there were over 6 million Christians in the Roman Empire, about 10% of the empire, at which point Christianity was made illegal. Like, this is getting out of hand. There's a bit too much leaven in the dough. We've got to put an end to this. Christianity was made illegal. But the kingdom continued to spread. It made no difference. The leaven continued to work through the dough. So much so that Constantine decided it would be prudent to make Christianity legal again because it might actually have some political advantage to him if he could get the Christians on side because there's so jolly many of them now. It would probably be useful if they were on board a bit more. And in 313 AD, Christianity was made legal again by Constantine. And beyond that, the kingdom continues to spread. The leaven continues to work through the dough, so much so that by 350 AD, there are an estimated 33 million Christians in the Roman Empire. About 50% of the empire professed Christ. The spread of Christianity across the Roman Empire was so complete that by 380 AD, Emperor Theodosius, or something along those lines decided to make Christianity the official state religion of Rome. Truly a great tree from such a small seed. Now it's more complex than that. <laughs> but that wasn't the end of the story. And we could look at that and go, wow, mission accomplished. Jesus' picture about the seed and the leaven within the first 400 years was done incredible but the truth is is that this is a new challenge in every generation 
This doesn't stop. If we fail to pick up the baton from the previous generation and declare the wonders of God to the next, if we fail to continue to introduce people to Jesus, if we fail to help people to stand up from under the weight, bent double under their sin and shame and find freedom and forgiveness in Jesus, then it stops. The Great Commission keeps going. If you're a Christian, then this is your call. There's a global and a corporate application to this picture, but there's also an individual one too, in a sense, this is how the kingdom works in your life, in your heart. I don't know whether you've noticed this, but it takes time to grow in Christ-likeness. It doesn't all happen overnight. It's not very quick. It feels a bit more like leaven in dough than a kind of instant whip I don't know some comparison there or something I want to encourage you by this picture to take heart if you look at your life and you think I'm, I'm not there yet take heart if you're in Christ if you have put your faith and trust in him if you found forgiveness in him then God is at work in you the leaven is at work in your life as it were yeah? The kingdom is at work in your heart. God is at work in you and he will see through to completion the work he began in you at salvation. The yeast is at work in the dough of your life. <laughs> it's a picture to hold on to. The seed has germinated and it's growing to bear fruit. And there's an individual application for those who you're praying for too. Sometimes the seed of the gospel seems to have been received, but you think, like, nothing's happening. Like, where did it go? It disappeared in the ground. Where did it go? They're not responding. They're not growing. I want to encourage you to keep praying, to trust God. Mustard seeds and yeast don't seem to be doing anything at first. Doesn't mean they're not. The end result's amazing. Pray and trust God. And finally, there's a very real sense in which this picture won't be fully complete, fully realized until Christ returns. We're living now in the proving drawer, as it were. <laughs> the seed is germinated. It's poked up through the ground. But when Christ returns in glory for his people, when Christ returns to make all things new, when he comes, then this picture will be complete and his kingdom reign will be absolute. Every eye will see, every ear will hear, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that he is Lord. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. And all who hope in him will be with him forever will be like those birds nesting in the branches, as it were, finding their home with him forever, living under his perfect rule and reign. This is our hope, isn't it? That those things that cause us at times to be bent over double now will be gone, dealt with forever. No more pain.
No more suffering. No more shame. No more sickness. When Christ returns and we are with him in his kingdom forever, those things will be no more. And we'll stand up straight and glorify God. Just like that woman in the synagogue. But we live in a tension now between the now and not yet of God's kingdom. We're called to, to bring it to those around us, to share, to live out the Great Commission, and yet we're also those who pray and wait with eager expectation for Christ's return. Whilst we wait, we work, we need the dough, if I can push the analogy that far. <laughs> we sow seed. We invite the Holy Spirit to cause the word of God to bear fruit in our lives and in the lives of those around us. We do everything we can to introduce people to Jesus, to show the love of God to them in word and in action. We do everything we can to help people find hope and healing and wholeness in the person and work of Jesus as we live as his disciples on the earth. And as we do, what happens? The yeast works through the dough. The kingdom continues to grow. Continues to grow in our hearts and lives. And continues to grow in the world. And we wait for Christ's return. We're going to take communion now together. I want to pray for us in different places today. So I think for some of us, there's a sense in which we need to find again freedom in what Christ has done for us. That some of us have begun to carry around the shame of sin in our lives. Or we've grown hunched over and bent over under emotional scar or experience that we've walked through that have caused wounding and hurt and you, you're here today and there's a sense in which you're hunched over under the weight of what you've walked with. Maybe some, it's, it's kind of worry about what's going to happen. Maybe worry about work situation or a relationship, whatever it is, there's something today that is causing you to feel hunched over under the weight. I want to pray for you that you would know freedom in Christ, just as that woman received a touch from Jesus that meant she could stand up and glorify God. That today, because of what Christ Jesus did at the cross for you, that you can know freedom. Freedom from shame. Freedom from those things that would weigh on you. Trust in him. Find wholeness again. For others of us, maybe that's not a particular struggle. But we look around and we think, God, it doesn't feel like your kingdom's advancing much right now. It's been an age since I saw someone saved. Or it's been so long since I saw someone healed and find freedom in you. It feels all very dormant right now. I want us to pray together. But as we pray to know that the kingdom is advancing, 
that Jesus is building his church, that the yeast is at work in the dough of the earth. And even when we don't see it, God's at work. And so we trust him and we join him. Yeah? Let's stand together, shall we?